All right, if you would, be turning in your Bibles to Joel chapter 2. <clears throat> we'll be in verses 28 through 32 this morning as we continue to, to walk through the book. Just to, by way of reminder, remember, Joel essentially has two halves. The first half dealt with lamentation and repentance for sins that were not named. And so that indicates to us that this book was to be used for liturgical purposes and to encourage repentance as a congregation, which is one of the reasons that we do a confession of sin as a congregation on a weekly basis. And the second half of the book, which we started last week, uh, Chris's sermon, is about hope. It's not that we are to just uh, lament and repent and then kind of go on with our lives. No, that's actually to be the entry point into deeper relationship with God the Father. As we saw last week, he restores creation so that worship can be restored, something that ought to be exciting to us. It's tough for us, in a sense, to appreciate that because we take worship for granted. Right? We're not really in a context as of yet to where it's hard to do what we do here. We get to do it, uh, and sometimes I think we see it sometimes as, as a bit of a labor, as something that uh, as, is more hassle than sometimes maybe even what we think it may be worth. And so in their case, when it was taken away, it actually ignited within their heart a longing for what they had lost. And so they ha- it's being given back to them. This morning, what we're going to see is that God doesn't just stop with the land. He actually redeems the people themselves. And it's, uh, it actually is the pinnacle of the book of Joel and actually a key pinnacle in all of redemptive history. So we want to give our attention to it this morning. And so by way of that, I want to make sure <clears throat> you know what, uh, what the key truth is uh, for this passage as we look at it this morning is, is that we have been unified. Let me, let me pause there. That, that in and of itself could require a, a whole series of sermons. Remember from Ephesians how important unity was to the person and work of Christ. Remember from John 17, this is part of what Christ died for. Not something that we should take lightly. And we've said it here before, we tend to, we tend to have a lot of quit in us. We tend to walk away from each other way too easily. We tend not to fight for what Christ died for. And so we want to make sure that we see this is a key part of the gospel. It's something we're going to wrestle with. Unity is not something that's just natural now, is it? We, we are easily divided. And so, uh, but what we want to see is how key it is. So we have been unified and empowered by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit so as to proclaim the gospel in our spheres of influence and bear fruit for the glory of God. So it's key that we recognize you've not only been saved from something, you've been saved for something. And that for that you've been saved for is to display the glory of God in the world for the life of the world. So any sort of theology, any sort of missiology, any sort of ecclesiology that would lead us out of the world is actually contra the gospel that would take us away from the very people who so desperately need to see what does it look like to be a Christian in living color, right? And, and to be able to see that that includes suffering, that includes failure, that includes messing up, that includes offending, giving and receiving, that includes uh, us not being perfect on display for the life of the world. So the first question that I have for you is, what most empowers you to share the gospel with others in some form or fashion? What is it that actually, of the times that you have shared the gospel with someone, uh, what was it that empowered you to do that? 
Was it, was it that the Holy Spirit provided the opportunity? Was it that the Holy Spirit provided the words? Did it come from you? And an even better question for us to con- consider, because I think this question actually, unfortunately, is all too pertinent for most of us in our daily lives, is what is it that limits you from sharing the gospel? If we're honest, it's because we are afraid people are going to think we're weird. Take heart. You're weird. Everybody knows it. Uh, (laughs) And that's okay, because no two of us are alike, and so you're going to be weird to somebody, right? Uh, And and there's going to be people who say, how do you eat that? Why in the world do you think that way? Why would you read that book of all things? Why would you watch that movie, that TV series? Why would you vote that way? Why would you take a perfectly good Sunday morning and spend it being miserable? Well, it's because we're weird. And you are too, and they are too, and that ain't what's most important. Uh, In fact, uh, what I've noticed is is some of the folks that I've found to be the strangest upon first meeting have become some of my closest friends, and vice versa, by the way. Uh, They would tell you the same thing. And so that's not really a, a hamper. You pray to an invisible God. The cat's out of the bag right? You think that a guy died to save us some several thousand years ago and that this invisible force has been poured out into you. And you think you're going to rise from the dead and that all this is going to be made new without much human effort. That's weird. And that's okay, right? It's supernatural. It doesn't fit within the natural realm of the world or the way that the world thinks about things because who's not at the center We're not. Not in the way that we want to be. We are actually in the center in terms of salvation, in terms of God's affection, in terms of Psalm 8. We are not in the center in terms of power and glory, except that which is bestowed upon us because of Christ. And so, what else might limit us from sharing the gospel? Well, that's for you to consider. Every one of us has our own set of things. For me, actually, interestingly, um, is I was a radical anti-theist. So I hated being confronted with the gospel, especially in any sort of sales pitch type way. If you didn't have a relationship with me, I wasn't about to listen to you. And I really hated it if it rhymed or if it was an acronym or I could pick up on any of it. Now, let me be very clear. Let me pause for a second for those of you who might be offended by that. Those, those things are not bad in and of themselves. They're not. I, just particularly as a radical anti-theist, couldn't stand them. If you gave me a track and just didn't pay attention, that would infuriate me. You were picking a pretty good fight. Um, and so, so, it, that's just a, so for me, one of the things that the devil whispers low is that any sort of sharing of the gospel in any sort of kind of unnatural circumstance, i.e., I don't have an extended relationship with that person, I fear, just confessionally, I hide behind, well, I don't think that'll work. Crazy thing is, it, 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 it's not up to me to make it work one way or the other, right? So what if the Lord did say, go find a track somewhere and give it to that guy over there? Oh, okay. Uh, you know, it, it would be hard, but 
But if that's what was laid upon my heart, should I deny the move of the Spirit? No. Now that I've said that, I'm pretty certain it's going to happen sometime in the next week or so. So y'all watch for the follow-up on that. So I am numbered among you in being sometimes resistant to sharing the gospel with people. The hard part is, and fortunately, not many people ask me what I do. Uh, I don't know if it's apparent or they just don't want to know or what. But once they ask me what I do or it comes up that I'm the pastor of a church, what, what, what next? Do I just not invite them? Like, hey, you really don't want to. You know, let's just be friends. Uh, so understand that, that this cuts all different ways for all of us. But it is important that we wrestle with the why. And some of it might even just be bad theology that you think too much depends on you. If the Spirit's not at work in it, I don't care what you try. It's not going to work. But more importantly, before you ever share the gospel with somebody, you've got to love people. You've got to actually genuinely care that they bear the image of God and need Him in Jesus. And so, the best evangelism you're going to do is prayer. The best evangelism that you can do is to have the Spirit change your affection for those who are lost. And that's what I hope we can see here in this passage this morning because there's a turn that happens in the passage that you can almost miss and you get wrong what's really trying to be communicated by Joel. So with that, let's turn to the text and look at verses 28 and 29, which is the promised unifying outpouring of the Holy Spirit for the life of the world. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now here we see that it says that this thing that's going to come to pass is going to come to pass afterward. Well, after what? Well, it's not immediately clear, but if we back up a little bit to where uh, from Chris's sermon, you remember he used the term Emmanuel, right? And since we're coming up on Christmas season and Advent, it's important. For, that's a beautiful term to us and something that uh, we, we should wrestle with every single week, that, that it is God with us. God's longing is to be with his people. The story from Genesis to Revelation is God seeking to be with those whom he loves. It's a wonderful story. And here we see, if we back up into uh, verse 26 and 27, he said, You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. So before the Spirit is to be poured out upon the people, we must have Emmanuel, God with us. Now what's amazing is, is, is Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41, he actually uses Joel 2, 28 through 32 as his text. If you remember, the Spirit had been poured out on them first. They had the tongues of fire indicating that the Lord was upon them, right? Much like the pillar of fire uh, that they saw ahead of them when they were in the wilderness, much like when there was fire in the Holy of Holies to let them know that the Lord was present, this let them know the Lord is with you. 
And if you remember, then the Holy Spirit is poured out subsequently as they do what they were commanded to do in Acts chapter 1, as they went on to uh, not just Judea, but Samaria, and, the, and on and on, right? And so what we see is that that occurs after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ and essentially his ascension. So before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the thing they were looking forward to, those who were hearing this would not see it in their lifetime. So they were to pass this on. Remember, one of the key pieces of Joel is that we would pass this story on to the generations. And so one of the things that they did do is they passed on the story to be looking for when Emmanuel comes, right? And you are filled and satisfied. And then, the, then comes afterward the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is the hope and the sign of God's restoration, that he is ushering in a new age. They looked forward to it. We live out of it. Because we live on the other side of Pentecost. The Spirit has been poured out. What a gift that we have this power. Which is one of the reasons why we here at Christ Community Church have started doing a sermon series on the Holy Spirit that will occur after Easter because we just don't talk about the Holy Spirit a whole bunch. But it's critical that we never move on from that foundational sermon series from John where Jesus actually gives us the understanding of the purpose of the Holy Spirit, which is, right, to make us look awesome. No. To make the reality of Jesus' awesomeness clear to the world, for the life of the world, both in terms of the conviction of sin and the guiding towards salvation. Too often we make that story about us. Now, does the Spirit work in and through His people? And is it always, by virtue of Him being the Holy Spirit, supernatural? Yes. But we oftentimes call natural what really is truly supernatural. We oftentimes squelch the work of the Holy Spirit by, by looking for greater miracles than just good old-fashioned reconciliation and forgiveness. So, we live out of this reality that they were looking forward to. Now, notice one of the key pieces that it says will be part of this outpouring of the Spirit. You have to appreciate how provocative it would have been for Joel in somewhere between the 9th and the 7th century B.C. to suggest that children could prophesy, much less sons, oh, and by the way, the other half, daughters. Hmm. See, what's important about that is, is that though there are roles which are limiting in and of themselves because God places the limits therein, what he does not limit is the ability of any image bearer to display all of his characteristics. This is critical. It's also critical and reminds us of our responsibility to raise the coming generations because they are going to judge the church. Do they not? Round about what season do they judge the most harshly? College. Right? College. They, they look at the church and they look at the world and if the church has told them that science is nonsense 
and that the natural world is meaningless, that goes down pretty quick and pretty hard. And if the church is utterly unconcerned with justice, uh-oh. Now, we got to be careful here because sometimes their view of justice and their view of science it needs banks of the river, does it not? Just as it does for us. One of the great things that the coming generations do for us is much like in the letter to the churches at Ephesus and Revelation. They call for us oftentimes to not forget our first love. Because we get old and set in our ways, don't we? And we think that no new word can be sung and no new way of expression is appropriate. Uh, and, uh, and that what we got going is fine. And they come along and like, what are y'all doing? This is one of the great things about having new believers in our midst is they read the Bible with eyes wide open, whereas we have long chopped it down, much like Thomas Jefferson did, to whatever suits our needs. But they come along and they say, hey, what are y'all, what is that? And we, the church, need to appreciate the gift that they are to us and not lop them off. This is one of the reasons why we here at Christ Community Church value our children being present in worship. I get it that some kids can pay attention better than others. Well, you adults kind of have a spectrum too, you know. (laughs) And I see it sometimes. It's also why in our youth group, we, uh, by and large, discuss the sermon so that they know we aren't two separate churches. I saw that way too often in my coming up in church is that there was almost a church within the church. And I know uh, that oftentimes uh, middle school and high school students are like, oh, you guys are so boring, which is a prophetic word. I'm serious. We are sometimes lifeless and feelingless. That is not okay. We should appreciate that word to us. Now, they don't get to decide that we're going to serve popcorn and worship necessarily. I like popcorn, by the way. Not a bad idea, but just not, not for here. Let's do that afterwards. Uh, and and so, so we want them to recognize, no, you are part of us. You have a say. We need to value their questions. We need to value their comments. Why? Because if they profess Christ, what do they have within them guaranteed? The Holy Spirit. Does it make every word they say true? Does it make every criticism valid? We can work through this. But we need to recognize that God doesn't, doesn't at all say because you're a certain age that you cannot receive the Spirit, that you cannot be of value to the very kingdom of God, to the church itself. So may we, the church, value our children's ministry and value our youth ministry, Right? And pray for them in such a way that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see what they have to offer to us. And then it goes on to say that your old men will dream dreams and young men shall see visions. Now, what's that all about? Well, uh, the the best explanation of this is that that there will be people who have uh, sacred and reconciled imaginations. This means that there are people who, both young and old, who will be able to articulate the beauty and splendor of the kingdom in a dark and fallen world. One of the uh, probably most moving uh, books that I've read in a long, long time that almost caused a third career change for me 
was a book called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. And now this book, we used, uh, not the book, but there's a Q talk uh, that we used for the Leadership Cultivation course, and it had the same impact on all of us. There's a movie actually coming out in January, and so we're going to have some discussions as a church about this topic, because Brian Stevenson uh, is a wonderful example of having a sacred imagination, a vision for what justice could look like for two groups of people in particular, those who are on death row for the wrong reasons, and the vast majority of them were African American in the South. Uh, one in particular was there for, I don't know, 20 some odd years, 30 years, uh, 60 Minutes covered it. I remembered it. It was years ago it was covered on 60 Minutes, and he wrote a book as well that's worth your attention. But Brian Stevenson also had an impact on the, we're the only, <laughs> interestingly, the only country, uh, progressive country on record that, that puts to death children or puts children on death row. And so, so we can have all kinds of arguments about that, right? Uh, and, and there may be some wise reasons on all sides, but he thought there was a better way. And so he set out after he graduated from law school to open a law practice in Alabama, of all places, and, and has had this phenomenal impact. He had a vision for what justice could look like for a, an easily forgotten group of people. And in that story, he has like this incredible encounter with one of the guards who is horrifically racist. He had a bumper sticker that said, if I know it was going to be like this, I'd have picked the cotton myself. And that Brian would have to walk past that, who's African-American, as he was going in. The guy hassled him every time. Well, amazingly, Brian was a non-anxious, loving presence to this man. And over time, this man comes to really appreciate Brian Stevenson and what he's doing, and in fact, resigns from his job because he sees it as unjust. Now, that's his story, that's, that's, right? So what I'm saying is Brian Stevenson is an example of someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit and loves Jesus and is saying, hey, what can one man do in the hands of the Lord who can see something is different? There's people who are doing these kinds of things all over the place. And may we be the people who have Holy Spirit-infused, sacred imaginations to be able to articulate what could this world look like in various places? We can't save it all. The whole world is not ours to save. But each of you is gifted, right? Each of us is creative in some way. Each of us has the capabilities to articulate some part of, of the gospel and the kingdom in ways that are beautiful and unique. And they ought to be biblical. There's banks of the river, right? And so, so where, where might we be able to do that, both young and old? Not just one or the other. Most of the time we hear dream dreams and visions, and we, we want to get weird about it. <laughs> Much better that what you could see is what the world can't see, is that God loves them, and that justice matters. And that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And that even between the now and the not yet, it could be different for the glory of God. Maybe you're not called to deal with people on death row. That's fine. But don't inhibit the people that are. Maybe you're called to something else entirely. I remember one of the great things I loved about being a physical therapist, and this is yet to leave me, by the way. I judge you all's posture and gait all the time. I just want you to know that. I've got mental notes in my head, 
you know, I, I know you. Uh, but I loved, I genuinely loved being able to take somebody. In fact, my first love was um, I was at South Fulton Hospital, which is now Atlanta Medical Center South or whatever. I don't even know what it is now. And, and they had one of the best neuro units in the entire Southeast. And, uh, and I remember in particular, there was a gentleman who was a, he, he was a piano player for his church. He was single. He was in his mid-40s. And, and he had a really rare stroke for a guy in his 40s. And he didn't really have any family. He wasn't married. He didn't have insurance. And I remember being in these meetings, and the discussion, unfortunately, I'm just going to let you see behind the curtain at Oz here. The discussion is not about whether or not we can help you get better. It's whether or not you've got the money for us to help you get better. That's the first discussion. I'm sorry. It is what it is. I'm in, I was in those meetings. And so he didn't have insurance, so guess what? All of the rubrics by which you should discharge somebody suddenly became much more fluid. Beautifully, in the sovereignty of God, we couldn't get rid of that guy to save our lives. But we saved his, in a sense, because a 40-year-old man who can't walk with no family, who is exiled to a nursing home, what do you think his future is? It is not good. In fact, it's, it's very poor. And so I remember being able to do some techniques that, are they miraculous? It felt miraculous. But it was along the grains of science, how we're designed. And so, so we, we helped him get to the place where he could walk on his own and leave the hospital uh, whole and not have to be exiled to a nursing home. Praise be to God. I miss, you know, I, I, I do, I, I miss that because I loved seeing those things transformed. I was an outpatient orthopedics. I also loved helping people with shoulders and necks and knees and backs and seeing them transformed. I know we have a couple of physical therapists in here. And so uh, what a gift it was. To, to, and I, I developed such deep relationships with people. My specialty was uh, ACL recovery, which is a long recovery, so we'd have them for a long time. And then shoulder surgery, also had those folks for a long time. It was such a gift. I could sneak up on them. They didn't know I was a pastor. Now I can't sneak up on anybody. Now I just sneak up on you and be like, hey, I think your hip's out. Uh, and be like, what are you talking about? That's not in the Bible. I didn't wrestle with God. Uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> So we, we need folks who have gifts and abilities, which all of you do, right, uh, that, that have these transformed sacred imaginations who can push back the darkness or see reconciliation where others can no longer see it. In places, it's long been forgotten. Notice what it also says, that even the male and the female servants will participate in this kingdom outpouring. That everything is going to be turned upside down. That all the classifications that the world has deemed, all the worth that the world has said, and sometimes even the church in worldly fashion, that that will be no more. And you may say, why? Well, that's Old Testament. Okay. Uh, hold your spot there, and let's flip to Galatians 3, 27 through 29. In Galatians, Paul gives a, a wonderful explication of the Abrahamic covenant, which is what we see unfolding here. So the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is not just for the people of God ethnic. It is for the people of God every tongue, tribe, and nation. And notice 
that one of the capstones, as he's, and this is Galatians chapter 3, where he calls the Abrahamic covenant the gospel, this is the beautiful and gorgeous resolution. Hear these words from Galatians 3, 27 through 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you are, the, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, did I just say that my maleness and some of y'all's femaleness doesn't matter? Absolutely not. In fact, that would be, that would be a, the wrong interpretation. In fact, what we should uh, be willing to recognize is how our differences actually glorify God in full, which is essentially what he is saying, is that everything comes together for the glory of God. And it means that these categories are temporary. And we, the church, should not let them be definitive in the sense of keeping people from displaying the glory of God and using their gifts for the glory of God, with the exception of a handful of a few roles. And so it's important that we recognize that one of the great goals of the gospel is that we would be a unified people undivided by all of these different categories. Which is why we need to be a people who care about reconciliation. Now, you have to do that contextually. You have to do that locally, right? So in America, what might be some of the greatest of all dividing lines? Is it with the us and the Balkans? Now, for some of you, you may say, yeah, I think we, we, we don't love the Balkans like we ought and that may be true, but the most immediate is according to our history and the places where we find ourselves. And so it becomes important for a church to care about things such as racial reconciliation, particularly between white folks and African Americans. That is our context. You're in the South. Welcome, welcome. And maybe you care about it at different levels, and maybe you care about it with different gifts and abilities, and you have different visions and dreams about what that could look like. It also, rising, is our relationship with those from south of the border and how that plays out and how we think about those things. We have to wrestle with it. There is no simple solution. That's what makes the gospel so variegated and beautiful is that it's not A plus B. Remember, none of this is simple math. It's relational. Starts relational with God, so why would it be different with us? So there's hard conversations that we have to be willing to have with one another and things we ought to care about by virtue of where God in his sovereignty has placed us, both moment and time and history and locale. And so that's what the outpouring of the Holy Spirit affords us the ability to do. And each of us will do that in the way that God has gifted us, in the way in which he has filled us with the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't do us any good to long for a gift we don't have. I've been reading Aesop's fables. And one of them that struck... In fact, Aesop's fables, so much of it is, 
If you need to appreciate what you have and not what you don't have. So there's the story of the turtle and the eagle. I think I have that right for the you Aesop fable scholars. It is a bird of some kind. I'm going with eagle for now. It is a turtle. And the turtle says, hey, I wish I could fly. And the eagle says, well, you can't. You don't have wings. He goes, well, how about you take me up in the air and see if, see if I can fly? Eagle says, I think that's a really bad idea, but okay. So the eagle picks him up and he carries him way up in the sky and he lets him go. And the end of the story is terrible. The turtle splatters all over the rocks and is dead. He dies because he can't fly. Moral of the story, turtles shouldn't try to fly. Uh, number one, that's the most local interpretation. But, but even more, you are gifted with what you're gifted with. Use it. Cultivate it. Don't be mad because you, you aren't a good public speaker. Don't be angry because you can't sing. I am numbered among you. I can't sing. If I could, I wouldn't be worth anything. Don't be mad because you, you have certain limitations. Those limitations are given to you as gift from God, actually. Don't be angry because you don't have certain resources at your fingertips. The Lord has given you what is needed for now. He knows you better than you know you, and you don't know what you're asking for. In fact, that's the interesting thing. So many of Aesop's fables is as people ask for things other than what they've been given, it always goes poorly. May we more lean into recognizing God's sovereignty and what he has given to us as gift. Some of it may be seasonal, may not be forever, and that's okay. But remember that each of us is to work together and build up the whole for the sake of the life of the world. Listen to what O. Palmer Robertson says of this text. He says, Joel brings the good news of an even greater blessing. That is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He prophesies about a climax in God's redemptive work that exceeds the restoration of the years the locust has eaten. God promises that with the coming of this great day, he will pour out his spirit on people from all the nations of the world. That is the greatest blessing he can give. It binds them intimately and inseparably to him and provides them with unlimited power to serve and glorify him. So this gift of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, so what is the true gift of the Holy Spirit? As you understand it, if you are a Christian, you have the Spirit within you in some measure. So what is that gift? Well, that gift is to be able to join in the redemptive work that God is already doing in this world. We get to join in the work of our Father in his world. And as John 15 tells us, and this blows me away, and I, a recovering cynic, I'm trying to believe it to be true. It says that if you abide in Christ, remember it's the story of the vine, right? You've got to use your imagination a bit. If you abide in Christ, which means you're in union with Christ, doesn't mean you're perfect. That means you, you're in the shelter of his wing of sorts. You are receiving your life's existence from who Christ is. Then, guaranteed by God, you will bear fruit. Did you hear that? So it's not on you 
to evangelize the world. It is on you to find out where God is already at work and just join the work that's already there and receive the gift and blessing of the fruit that will be born for his glory. But so often because, and we're funny this way, I hear this from some of y'all. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna use this, I'm not trying to flip this into a tithing sermon, but I have to, it's a great example. Some of you think if you can't tithe 10%, which by the way, so few do, you, you think, if, you, if I can't tithe 10%, I'm going to tithe no percent because that's better for the church. Well, as one who has a house payment coming up, uh, no. That, 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 that doesn't make sense. But we use that with evangelism as well, don't we? Well, if I can't do it all the way right and I'm not guaranteed a results, I'm not going to do it at all. Well, where did that thinking come in? And why would nothing be better than something in any of these regards when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, when it comes to the things of the Lord, especially when he says, I will take the smallest of what you have and I will turn it into something great and valuable. And just so we're clear here, I'm not a strict 10 percenter, but that's a conversation for another time. And so I think it's important that we recognize that we've been filled with the Spirit for a purpose. And that fruit is guaranteed to be born as a result of us cultivating that relationship with the Spirit, which is cultivating a relationship with God in and through union with Christ. So this empowers us to be a blessing for the life of the world, which so desperately, by the way, needs it. Has forever, since east of Eden. There is no halcyon set of days, because someday was not halcyon for somebody. So if you would, let's turn back to the text and see how the, the, the outpouring of the Spirit for the people of God now becomes for the life of the world. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. All right, so yet again, we see that, that what God does with creation signals something to the world, Right? Uh, for those of you familiar with the book of Revelation at all, this should sound fairly familiar. This is apocalyptic talk. And so what God is saying is, I will send a warning. Again, he is so gracious. He's long-suffering. Before the day of the Lord comes, think about it. Stuff's going to happen that there's going to be no explanation for and that nobody can just up and just render away. And yet if you read Revelation, you're going to discover they will. They'll ignore it just the same, which means, why would they ever listen to you if not for the power of the Holy Spirit? If God can turn the moon to blood and darken the sun and send giant hail storms and mountains thrown into the sea, again, I'm riffing off Revelation a bit here, but do any of this stuff, and they go, yeah, I'm just not that impressed. What makes you think you're just going to sit down in the beauty of your intellect and the wisdom of your apologetic? and the tightness of your theological thought and cause them to say anything else except, I don't care. Now, if the Spirit is using any of those things, amen, what a beautiful thing, but don't you turn 
and thank your hands or your brain for the books you've read. Thank the Lord your God because it is he who grants fruit because of those things, not you. But notice he shows his patience to all mankind as he displays these things. And they will turn and call on him. But how? again, this is where the New Testament's helpful to us. Remember in Romans, how will people call on the name of the Lord? This is Romans 10, actually picking up what's being said here. How will people know to call on the name of the Lord if they have not heard? They won't. So all these spirit-filled people who've had the Spirit poured out on them. It is their calling and job to display the glory of God in the world in both word and deed so that when the time comes, they'll know who to call for. Romans 10 is in particular talking about preaching. That How will they know unless they hear? How will they hear unless one is sent? And then it has that most terrifying of all conclusions that we in the Reformed community don't like to say out loud. And they are not going to listen to you. That's a terrible benediction when you graduate from uh, seminary. That's why they don't say it. They leave that one hanging so you go and figure it out, right? Awesome, thank you. But it's not because you didn't tell them, but there will be those who do respond. But by and large, people aren't going to come necessarily in droves. But it is important that those who do come are able to come because those who have been empowered by the Spirit display their sanctified imaginations in the world and display the glory of the gospel in the sacred canopy of their marriage. Something too many of you have allowed to become anything but a sacred canopy. Instead, it's a tortured garden of sorts. And something that we should tend and take seriously Not only that, but in how we raise our children, which, by the way, that's a straight line, huh? No. But the world needs to see how we love our children, not imposing law upon them, but applying law and grace. Long-suffering and all of it. You want to display all the characteristics of God? Have children. You'll get the chance, I promise you. And how we love our neighbors, the relationships that we have with other people. You cannot share the gospel shut up in your home with the lights off watching some television. You just can't do it. It's not osmotic. You must engage. And different ones of us are called to engage at different levels. Fear not. You're not called beyond what you're gifted. And so, what we see here is that we've got work to do, that we were granted the outpouring of the Holy Spirit so as to go forth into the world. And if you are a Christian, this is what, listen to me, this is what you are going to be held accountable for. When it says that you must stand before God and give an account, it will be for this. What did you do? with the talents he has given to you. Each of us have different amounts, but what did you do with them? Now, don't fear that, because what did I tell you from John 15? If you abide in Christ, what will you guaranteed have to offer when you stand before him? Fruit in abundance. And do remember that we've talked about before that sometimes that fruit's going to look nothing like what you would have picked. 
It's actually going to come from what you thought was a poisoned root or some circumstance that you'd rather have cut down and thrown into the fire instead of having to go through the long, arduous process of saving something. If you come to our house out back, because Susan won't let me put them out front, is the garden of misfit plants that she has cast into the woods and that I've gone and retrieved and am trying to call back forth into life, newness of life. I've got a dwarf dahlia that's, he's fighting like crazy. It's impressive. I want to, you know, he's, he's, I've had to cut some stuff off. He looked like he had some quit in him. I talked to him. We've had it, anyway. It's not as weird as it sounds, I promise uh, but but you, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, we need to be the kind of people who are about salvaging things, breathing new life back into that which was dying, calling forth from tombs. Not because we have the ability, but because God said that's what he loves. That's what he longs for. We are the people of the Spirit. Do you have any idea of the power that is in you? you have any idea of the joy that you will have at, at having something eternal that you have invested in to see it come all the way to fruition? The joy that I have in seeing that little plant fight pales so far in comparison to one day hearing my son say, Jesus is Lord and Savior of my life. I'll throw that dahlia back in the woods if that were the trade, but that's not the trade. And so we need to be a people who recognize that a judgment is coming and we should care that there will be people who perish. We should care that there's anyone who might not know Christ as Savior. That should affect us. Because somewhat like Aesop's fables, I think when we get there, we may discover that it was people closer to us than we realized. And that regret and that sorrow will not, not easily be assuaged. That'll take fire purification, 1 Corinthians 3. And so, again, take heart. Abide in the vine. Be filled with the Spirit and know that the Lord bears fruit despite and through your weakness. And so, may we recognize that we are here for something. We've been saved for something. This, this, this quote is a, a tad lengthy, but... It's worth your hearing. It's John Calvin uh, in his commentary on Joel. And yes, he speaks in, he was spoken a completely different language actually, but there's some these and thous. That's good for you actually sometimes to hear that because it makes you think a bit. It's not how you go around talking. If you do, like I said earlier, you're weird. That's your way of being weird and it's cool. Robbie loves it. <clears throat> Me too. Uh, this is indeed a remarkable passage. For God declares that the invocation of his name in a despairing condition, listen at this, is a sure port of safety. What the prophet had said was certainly dreadful. That the whole order of nature would be so changed that no spark of light would appear, that all places would be filled with darkness. What, therefore, he says now is the same as though he declared that if men called in the name of God, life would be found in the grave. They who seem to be even in despair and from whom God seems to have taken away every hope of grace. 
provided they call in the name of God, will be saved. As the prophet declares, though they be in so great a despair and in a deep abyss, this circumstance ought to be carefully noticed. For if anyone takes this sentence of the prophet by itself, though then it would not be frigid, it would not yet be so striking. But when these two things are joined together, that God will be the judge of the world, who will not spare the wickedness of men, but will execute dread, dreadful vengeance, and that yet salvation will be given to all who call on the name of the Lord, we see how efficacious the promise is. For God offers life to us in death and light in the darkest grave. What must someone do in order to be saved? Get their affairs in order. Make sure they've read Nahum. Follow four spiritual laws. Tithe. 10%. 23 and a third percent. Which is closer to truth. Or what? What must they do to be saved? They must humbly and submissively Call upon the name of the Lord, who they know to be good and who loves them and who will save them. They must confess themselves a sinner in need of a Savior. And that Christ alone is that Savior by faith alone, through God's grace alone. No work can save them, not yours or theirs. Take heart. And how does God make sure that they know to call on his name? you. Trees can't do it. Redeemed dahlias can't do it. Uh, uh, redeemed sneezeweed can't do it. I've got a beautiful sneezeweed. You should come look at it. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, none of those things can do it. It is only through your confession of Christ and them seeing faith and grace displayed in and through others. Now, can God use other supernatural means? Yes, sometimes he does. He'll make the stones cry out. He loves his people that much. But he would prefer to use the church that he's redeemed in the name of Christ so that we, the hands and feet, could share in. And I just don't think we get how awesome this party's going to be. And you don't want to show up empty-handed. But in the marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, when we dine on the finest of wines and the richest of meats, my birthday was this week, thank you. I'll accept presents over here on the left. My left, your right. Uh, I have eaten like a king this week, and it's not been helpful in some respects. Bonnie made a pumpkin tiramisu that you should force her to make for you too. Even though she looked at it and said it looks terrible. It was, it was a wonderful sales pitch. I've eaten pumpkin creme brulee. I've eaten steak. I've eaten chicken wings. You know, you know where I'm from. It has been, but, it, but here's the thing. There's, though all that was just, just mere foretastes of the greatest that's coming. And that's important for us to remember that this world has nothing to offer us of any lasting value. That what is being offered to us is opportunity to join in the eternal work. So that is where you want to put your hands. The things that matter the most. And so, how does this affect your hope 
for those you know in, the, in your various spheres of influence who aren't currently professing Christ as Savior? What hope would you have if it depended on you to save them, especially given your track record thus far with them? Well, that's the beauty, is that we have a greater hope. And we know that it may be even beyond our lifetime, but what an amazing thing that at that meal somebody shows up that during your lifetime you had no idea was coming. And you will excitedly make a place for them because Christ has already made a place for them and you'll be excited to see them. What a joy that will be for us all. There are many stories like that. In fact, two from just this morning in Kenya. Masamara. I got an email from Travis Sawyer. Uh, we've supported them on a few different issues, and they have been laboring in Kenya for a long time. He had a man who, who, who said he knew Jesus years ago, who realized just this morning that he was more in the Matthew 7 category, that had he gone before the Lord, he would have heard, depart from me for I never knew you. He actually truly came this morning to an understanding of the Lord, and Travis said, you, you see it in him. It was just something different. There's also a woman from the village that they, has only been coming for a few weeks. She too professed Christ. How should you respond, people of God? <clears throat> I'm not sure it rivaled the party in heaven, but hey, we did what we could, right? Uh, <laughs> and so what, what a gift that he got to participate in that. And they've labored so hard in Masamara. They love it. And what a gift that the Lord would grant them fruit that they could see in this lifetime. And that we actually get to hear about. That should be encouraging to us because the Lord is still at work in this world. So Joel 2, 28 through 32, teaches us two things, at least. That we have been unified, which is for a purpose. Tell me, how many of you have ever gone to a church that you knew there was disunity in the church? Keep your hands down. I don't want to know. We all have. And did you stay? <laughs> uh-uh. Not long. This unity actually is a noxious thing, particularly in the church. And, and, and for those of you who stayed, you fought the good fight, amen to you. But most folks aren't sticking around for that stuff. And that is not a welcoming spirit to walk into a church at war. Certainly not, even if you've been here for a while. It's not something you would enjoy. So we've been unified for a purpose, and that purpose is for the life of the world. And we've also been empowered by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You've been saved for something. And that for is to proclaim the gospel in our spheres of influence and bear fruit to the glory of God. No matter what your circumstance and weakness is, it is an opportunity to display uniquely God's presence and gifting in your life through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What a gift that we get to partake of the Lord's table this morning and be reminded of what we've been filled with and what we ought be nourished by. One of the beautiful things that Calvin uh, put forward about the Lord's Supper is that it was not just bare memorial. And it wasn't that it got turned into the body and blood of Christ because he, he's in a fixed location, can't be scattered all over creation but that something genuinely does in fact happen when we take of the Lord's table, our spirit, our inner being is nourished. We are nourished for the things that the Lord has called us to. This, in the power of the Holy Spirit, empowers us afresh 
with his filling. And so we get to be reminded of that outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we live in and through, right? And the hope that others will come to know that filling as well. And so no matter how tired you are, no matter how, uh, what a struggle it may be for you uh, in terms of just what may be going on this week, know that if you know Christ as Savior, your track record is not what welcomes you to the table. He does. Your failings this week, if admitted and repented of in spirit and truth, don't keep you from this table. It actually is the invitation to take and eat and know that the Lord is good. But if you don't know Christ as Savior, you wait for the longer lunch coming later. If you are unwilling to forgive others of their sins, well, then you need not take of this table until you get that theologically right because you don't get to decide who comes and doesn't. But for everybody else who knows Christ as Savior, you are invited in the power of the Holy Spirit yet again one more time to a smaller meal that is a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb to come. So let's remember what Christ said on the night that he was with the disciples and he knew that he would be crucified that night. Essentially, it was end of watch, if you will. And he knew it. And he wanted them to have something that would be a perpetual reminder, that they would have something that would say to them, Take heart and hope fervently. Hope creatively. Have your imagination sacredly transformed. Which is why he took something so common to them so it would be an oft reminder. And he said, this, this is my body and it's given for you. And the broken bread. And what he was saying to them is that in that, uh, in the sign and symbol of the broken bread, was the forgiveness of their sins, that their shame and guilt would be taken away. Think about what, if we're honest, what keeps us from sharing the gospel? Shame and guilt. By and large, I'm going to get it wrong. I, I messed up this week. I'm going to have to, I got to at least read my devotions at least four out of seven days before I can go sharing the gospel with somebody. Um, as if, right? I mean, we have all these things that keep us from actually sharing our story. And actually, it's the messiness of your story that may have the truest ring and the power of the Spirit. So shame and guilt, but also we fear the wrath of the Lord. Some of you share the gospel because you're afraid God's going to hurt you, and so it's got you so nervous and worked up, you're not doing it very well either, and so let that be taken away from you as well. God is not angry with you. He loves you. You're his son and daughter. But what he wants for you is to grow in your ability to understand his love for you and to share that with everybody you know. So as you receive the bread this morning, if you would hold it, because we'll take together and eat as family, uh, but meditate on how this bread could actually nourish you and help, help you in the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to share the gospel uh, in, a, in a more refreshing and creative way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the broken bread that signifies Christ's body given for us, and I thank you that it satisfied your wrath and removed our shame and guilt for the totality of our sins past present, and future. May we be empowered to share the gospel as a result of being nourished in and through the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.